Well, open your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. We're again in chapter 4, excuse me, in chapter 9. We're continuing to explore this topic of evangelism. So this is the second of the four weeks that we will focus on this. The nine mark book is what we're studying in our small group, our care group application time on Tuesday and Wednesday. I believe there are still a couple of those books available. I don't see them down here, but there might be, it might be a couple out and about in the classrooms or in my office even. So if you do not have a book and would like one, please be sure to let me know. And if we need to pick you one up, I will be uh, quick to do that so that you will have access to read along as we study throughout the week and as we apply the truths of God's Word in our time together on Sunday. So last week we looked at the call to evangelism. Andrew and Peter, James and John, fishermen, professionally by trade, were busy doing what they have done for countless numbers of days in their lives, fishing along the banks of the Sea of Galilee. They already possessed a saving faith in Christ, even though the Gospels don't record their specific decision of salvation. And now it is time to fulfill God's plans and purposes for them by becoming fully devoted followers of Christ. And so as Jesus encounters them as they're busy fishing, and He gives to them the call to follow, the call is to become fishers of men. It is actually a command, not a request, not an invitation. It is an expectation as a disciple to follow Him is to fish for men just like Jesus did. So to be a disciple is the other sign, excuse me, the other side of the coin of salvation. To be Savior, to be, for Him to be our Savior means that He is to be our Lord. For us to call upon Him as our Savior means that we are to execute Lordship through our lives by allowing Him and His Word to define and dictate what it is we are to do in the lives that we live. You can't have one Without the other, to call Jesus as your Lord means He's your Savior. To claim Jesus to be your Savior means that He is also your Lord. The second thing that we looked at is this call to serve. We are to serve Him by doing what He asks. And here, Jesus is asking His disciples to become fishers for men. Thirdly, the call to follow is a call to prioritize. Being a disciple of Christ means... That our lives require a fundamental change of perspective. This is an important distinction about what lordship means. It doesn't mean that we just do a few religious activities. It doesn't mean that we start to attend church and we do a few things in His name. It is a fundamental change of perspective. It is to have the mind of God. It is to pursue His plans and His purposes. To make them a priority for us. It is to be involved and invested in working for His kingdom, not just checking off religious duties or religious actions in our lives. It is to work to build His kingdom, and to do so is to prioritize evangelism in our lives. So our very rudimentary, our working definition of evangelism, it's there in your sermon insert, it is telling anyone anywhere the gospel. It's the most simple definition, telling anyone, anywhere, 
the gospel. For some, they might say, well, what is the gospel message? And surprisingly and sadly, there are a variety of descriptions and definitions of what the gospel actually is. Our working definition of the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. It is explaining to someone who Jesus is, what it is Jesus has done, and what we must do in order to know Him. It is impossible to share the gospel without opening our mouths and speaking words. Telling someone you believe in God is not sharing the gospel. Telling someone that you're a Christian is not sharing the gospel. Inviting someone to attend your church is not sharing the gospel. Telling someone, God bless you, or walking out the door and telling someone, God loves you, is not sharing the gospel. Living a clean, moral life is not sharing the gospel. Feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, and sheltering the homeless is not sharing the gospel. Evangelism is sharing the gospel, which is telling anyone anywhere the good news of who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and how one can come to know Him. Apart from that, we are not sharing the gospel. As a part of my preparation and some other things that I'm doing, as a part of furthering our efforts collectively in the area of evangelism, it's interesting as I've looked at what others believe the gospel really is. And there's no mention of sin or repentance or faith in Christ. It seems to be centered around God's love for you, your loneliness or aloneness, and just come to Jesus and everything will be great. Well, there's truth in that, but that's not really the gospel message. And so as we think about what the gospel entails, we must begin with a very simple truth that the gospel contains who Jesus is, what Jesus did, and what we must do in order to know Him. This is what Jesus was calling these men along the banks of the Sea of Galilee to join Him in becoming fishers of men. And this is what He calls us to do as we continue our study in this broad topic of evangelism. So so today we look at number two in our ongoing outline, and that is the cause... The cause is the reason for evangelism. So in Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38, Jesus begins to explain, to demonstrate, to show the reason for evangelism. Here's what God's Word would say to us today. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, The harvest is plentiful, But the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into His harvest. I wonder how many times we've read that and not really sat upon it, contemplated it upon it, meditated on it, asked God, what are we to do in light of this reality? And so this is what Jesus is beginning to do, is He's beginning 
to enact a plan where these men would actually become fishers of men. So we're going to look at a couple of things here. Number one, as we look at the cause, we're going to look at the work. The work that is a part of what Jesus had been doing and the work that He is going to call them to do in their service as a disciple in the execution of following Him. Verse 35, Jesus was going to all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So this verse does two things. It summarizes all that Jesus has done as recorded in the gospel of Matthew, beginning in chapter 5, all the way through the end of chapter 9. It is also going to serve as an introduction into what we're going to read about, what we would read about in chapter 10 following, if we were to go through this verse by verse and chapter by chapter. So the ministry of Jesus can be broadly summarized in this single verse. Jesus was going through all the cities and the villages, and here in Matthew chapter 9, he's in the region of Galilee, And we're told by the great historian Josephus that the region of Galilee encompassed an area of roughly 40 miles in its width and 70 miles in its length, roughly 280 square miles. The least of these villages would inhabit approximately 15 people. And that means that Jesus in the region of Galilee, as He went through all the cities and all the villages, would likely encounter a minimum of 3 million people. I did some looking around. I get... I get focused on these things, these things sometimes. And so 280 square miles is smaller, excuse me, is greater than the size of the city of Philadelphia, although it wouldn't encompass the same amount of numbers of people, but it's much, much smaller than the county of Chester that we live in. 280 square miles is the region that Jesus is going about doing the work in His ministry. So the first thing that we see in the work of Jesus is this. Jesus taught. Everywhere Jesus went, He went to the synagogues and He taught. When He was teaching, He was explaining and applying the truth of the Old Testament into the day and into the life of the individuals that he would encounter. Now again, Matthew is summarizing the work that Jesus had already done as recorded in Matthew chapters 5-9. through And so as a part of summarizing the teaching that Jesus was busy doing in these chapters, it would include the Sermon on the Mount, which included the Beatitudes. It was an explanation of how Jesus' followers in the world are to live as salt and they are to shine their light in the darkness of the world in which they lived. He taught how to understand God's law. He taught them the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer. He taught them about money and about worry and about judging people. He taught them about entering God's kingdom. He warned them about false prophets and He provided them the truth about building a strong foundation in one's life. These teachings were revolutionary and they were like nothing the people had ever heard from the religious leaders of the day. So as Jesus went along in the region of Galilee, He taught. 
explaining the Old Testament and making relevant the truth of the Old Testament into the lives of the people that he encountered. The second aspect of the work that Jesus took upon himself was this. Jesus preached. It says here specifically, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And so as Jesus went, he taught and he preached. He preached the kingdom of the gospel. To proclaim is to preach. And everywhere Jesus went, he preached the gospel of the kingdom of God. He was unfolding the mysteries that were mentioned but not explained in the Old Testament and how he and himself fulfilled the promises that are to be found in the long-awaited Messiah. Notice that Jesus went to the synagogues. He went to the Jewish people explaining and teaching how He Himself would fulfill all that they were looking for in the long-awaited Messiah. Now the word gospel in the Greek is the word evangelon, and here it means good news. Jesus taught the good news. Jesus evangelized with the good news, and He was teaching about Himself and the kingdom of God. This is always good news. Whether the audience understands it as good news, whether they receive it as good news, the reality is the message about Jesus is the good news of the gospel, and the good news of the gospel is how we evangelize in our world. This is why in our English Vocabulary, this is why in our own understanding, evangelism and gospel are to be synonymous terms. They aren't two different things. Evangelism isn't a broad idea about sharing your faith with the lost. Gospel isn't the information that is contained in the message about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. To evangelize is to share the good news. To share the good news is to evangelize. They are synonymous terms never to be compartmentalized in the mind or in the idea that Christians have about this topic and this subject. So when Jesus was preaching the kingdom of the gospel, he was calling upon his hearers to believe in him as the fulfillment of the promised Messiah. Now the last thing that we see in Jesus' work is that Jesus healed. Ah, well, Jesus healed. Hold on to that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So coupled with his revolutionary teaching and his preaching, Jesus healed Many, many people. He healed far more than is recorded for us in the pages of the gospel accounts. Jesus healed everywhere he went. And what is often recorded for us is the kind of healing or the type of healing that Jesus went about doing. These miracles authenticated his authority and his message and the impact of his healing coupled with the message that he preached and taught, was profound. He amassed thousands upon thousands of followers, 
So much so that at the feeding of the 5,000, which only numbered the men, it is estimated conservatively that there was an excess of 25,000 people when Jesus fed them all with a few loaves of bread and a few fish from the lunch basket of a boy. Now remember, verse 35 summarizes chapters 5 through 9 in the teaching that Jesus did, and it's also there to introduce us to the work that will be delegated to His disciples. So it is a summary, and it is a segue, and we're going to understand that as we go through this. Until this point in Jesus' early stages of ministry, the disciples have simply been listeners and onlookers observing and learning. They were not doing. They were simply following and watching and they were amazed at what they heard Jesus say and what they saw Jesus do. All of the actual ministry, the teaching, the preaching, and the healing has been performed by Jesus alone. Now, Jesus shows the reason and the need to begin involving the disciples in the work that he had been doing. So number two in our outline, we see the compassion. Verse 36. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So as Jesus is going through the region of Galilee, this roughly 280 square mile place, and encountering conservatively a few million people, He has compassion upon them. And at this point, by commentators and scholars, it is assumed that perhaps Jesus is now ascending a hillside in the region of Galilee, and He is able to see the mass of people either coming to follow Him or the mass of people who are busy living out their daily lives. And it says here that Jesus is moved to compassion. Now this word in the Greek conveys very strong emotion. A single word in our English vocabulary is not able to encompass. Very strong emotions and accumulatively it would include he had pity upon them. He had sympathy for them. He was empathetic with them. In short, his heart went out to the people. Have you ever felt such an ache deep in your soul over the circumstance or the difficulty that a loved one faced? Have you ever felt just this pit in your stomach of recognizing the need and of seeing your own inability to meet that need? Have you ever felt that way about a loved one in your life? Well, as your kids get older and as your grandkids come along and live their lives, we just kind of cling to something. We hang on and go, oh, this is not going to turn out good. This is going to be bad. I fear for what is going to come. And we have this knot, this gnawing in our stomach, and it conveys a deep emotional state of being that words are inadequate to explain. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ feels 
as he looks upon the masses of people, the way Jesus feels about the mass of humanity that he sees that are distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd go to a much greater degree than you and I could ever feel for anything or anyone in our lives. Why? Because He is God. He knows and He feels to a greater degree than you and I ever could. And so Jesus has great compassion because of their spiritual condition. As he looks out over the mass of humanity, Jesus is deeply aware of their spiritual condition. This is why Matthew describes it as people who are distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd. So to this point in Matthew, Jesus has responded to physical needs by healing people, but the description here moves us to what is far deeper and is more universal than just the group of people that Jesus sees. It is the spiritual condition of the lost. To be distressed and dispirited implies oppression, exhaustion, and a lack of direction. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Now the sheep-shepherd motif is a frequent one all throughout the Old Testament. And it is used to relate to God's relationship with His people. He is like a shepherd caring for His sheep. But it also speaks to the need of the people who are in desperate need to be under the leadership of this loving, majestic, gracious shepherd who desires to protect them and provide for them and to lead them in the way that they should go. Now, we aren't sheep farmers and we don't understand what an ancient shepherd would actually go through But sheep are completely dependent upon a shepherd for absolutely everything. Just like a newborn baby is absolutely dependent upon everything to be provided for them by their mother. Sheep cannot protect themselves. They cannot provide for themselves. They don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They will simply follow the leadership of the shepherd and they will trust that the shepherd will lead them in the way that they should go. This is why David uses this exact same motif in Psalm 23. He describes his own understanding with God the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not fear. He will lead me to green pastures. He will lead me to quiet waters. He will restore my soul. This is what sheep are looking for in a shepherd. And this is what the mass of lost humanity is looking for. And they can't find it anywhere in the world. If we could see what Jesus sees in the lost spiritual condition that is prevalent in the world around us, we would be moved to tears and our hearts would ache with a sense of inability to meet this need. Somebody's got to do something 
to meet this need. Well, the religious leaders of Israel were to be the under-shepherds for God leading the nation of Israel in the way that they should go, providing for them, protecting them, helping them to find God's ways and to know what it was to walk in God's ways in a way that would bring about God's blessing and would bring about God's pleasure. But the reality is, is that the spiritual leaders were doing a terrible job. We would read in Matthew chapter 23, the scribes and the Pharisees, this is Jesus speaking, have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. In this same chapter, Jesus unleashed eight woes against the Pharisees for their selfish, hypocritical leadership that has led the people to be spiritually distressed and dispirited. Jesus would accuse the Pharisees and the religious leaders of binding a weight around the necks of the people that put them in spiritual bondage and led them to the point of being dispirited and depressed. This is one of the reasons why Jesus' words were so appealing to the people. He eased the spiritual burden of spiritually distressed and and dispirited people with what? With the truth of God's Word. Truth about God is always good news. Even if the people don't recognize it, even if they don't embrace it, the truth about God is always good news. Now, number three on our outline as we move through this, we see the problem. Jesus has brought the disciples upon this hillside and He has been moved to compassion as He looks over this mass of humanity. And here is the problem. Verse 37. He said to His disciples, not inwardly, not internally, not as a silent prayer, but He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Now, generally, in the Bible, the word harvest is used as a reference to judgment, but here it clearly references something else, something that is to be restorative upon the mass of humanity that Jesus has compassion on. As Jesus looks at this large group of spiritually distressed and dispirited people, He makes this startling statement, the harvest is plentiful. The mass of people are ready to respond to the good news. His message that He has been preaching about the kingdom of God. His explanation about what the Old Testament means and about the one that it points to. The harvest is plentiful. You know, a a farmer never talks about a plentiful harvest until the crop is ready to be gathered. He thinks about the harvest. He worries about the harvest. He prays about the harvest. But he will never announce that the harvest is plentiful until it's time to go and get it. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is looking at this mass of humanity and He is telling them... He's telling the disciples, the harvest is plentiful. 
You and I could look upon a, a, a field of, of grain, of wheat, of corn that is ready to be harvested, and we would go, oh, I don't know, maybe it is, I think it might be. It kind of looks like it is, but a farmer always knows. And Jesus knows that the harvest is plentiful. These people, the mass of humanity, that are spiritually distressed and dispirited and are living their lives like sheep without a shepherd, they are ready for the harvest. As I read about this, as I studied this, I was pinged deep into my soul. When was the last time that I looked upon a mass of humanity and said, that is a group of people who are ready for the harvest? You know what I often see? I see a group of sinful, selfish, inconsiderate people who don't care about anything that I value, don't care about anything that I hold to be dear and true. These are people who are enemies of God. These are people who hate God. These are people who are hostile towards God. These are people who might want to do me harm. I don't see them with compassion. I don't see them as a people who are ready for harvest. I listen to the deceitful words of the enemy and I see a group of people who don't want the good news, who don't care about the good news, whose lives won't be changed by the good news. Is that true? Well, maybe for some. Is it true for all? Absolutely not. Do we see people in need of a Savior? Do we see people who are ready to be harvested for the kingdom of God? So Jesus highlights this reality, this, this truth that the harvest is plentiful. And then He identifies the problem. The workers are few. Well, this is a massive understatement. Think about this. At this moment in time, as Jesus looks out on the mass of humanity and just envision the region of Galilee which encompassed maybe some three million people, the workers are few because Jesus is the only worker. Who are the workers that are bringing in the harvest? Is it the religious leadership? Is it the idols that the non-Jews were worshiping? Even John the Baptist, who was working for the harvest, is in jail. And so when Jesus says the workers are few, what what He's saying is, I'm the only one. I'm the only worker for this harvest that is plentiful. Now I can imagine as the disciples are gathered around Jesus and as He says the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, I can imagine them saying, yeah, you know, that's a big problem. There's a lot of people down there. There's a lot of people out there. This is a big, big problem, Jesus. I don't know what you're going to do. (laughs) 
Well, Jesus knows what he's going to do, right? Number four in our outline, the solution. Verse 38. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to sound out workers and to his harvest. Ah, there's the answer. The answer is to pray. The answer is to pray that the Lord of the harvest will send out workers into His harvest. That's a great spiritual response to a big spiritual problem. Now to be clear, Jesus is not saying pray for lost people. Jesus is saying pray that God would send out people into the world to work to be used by God to save lost people. That's what this this solution actually is. It's not to pray for lost people. It's to pray that God would bring up workers to go out into the harvest field and bring it in. Is that all there is to it? I can imagine the disciples and... and uh, Probably some of us today. Yeah, that's that's a great solution. We need to pray that God's going to send people out there to harvest in the lost souls. That's a good idea. We should pray. Well, remember that verse 35 is a transitional verse that summarizes what Jesus had been teaching in chapters 5 through 9. And it's also the introduction to what Jesus is preparing his disciples for. We'll see this most specifically in verse 5. But beginning in chapter 10, Jesus begins His work of preparing and commissioning the disciples to go out into the fields and bring in the harvest. Now when He called them, Andrew and Peter and James and John, He used the analogy, uh, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And here He is saying, and, and without actually saying, is there's the harvest and I'm going to make you farmers who are going to bring in an abundant harvest. That's what He is saying in a sense. So the believer who prays for God to send workers out into His harvest... Very good. We need to do that. We need to pray that God will send workers out into the harvest. And I'm quoting from a commentator now, and I don't remember who it was. The believer who prays for God to send workers out into his harvest, but is unwilling to go himself, is insincere and hypocritical. The Christian who genuinely prays for God to send witnesses should also be willing to be sent. You know, it's just like us. It's just like people. It's just like the disciples. To say, yeah, there's a big, big problem and I'm sure that it can be solved. God, who are you going to send to solve that problem? Who are you going to send to address that need? Who are you going to prepare to do that work? We never look in the mirror. We always look outward for somebody else to do what God has called us to do. So the Christian who generally prays for God to send witnesses should also be willing 
to be sent. Now, we're not going to go all the way through chapter 10, but I want to highlight just a couple of things here. Jesus, after saying, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then down to the beginning of verse 5, these twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do you think that's what the disciples were thinking when Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few? As they were saying, yeah, that's a big, big problem. Do you think that they were being nominated to go out and to work the harvest? I don't think they were for a minute. Jesus made the disciples aware of this plentiful harvest, told them to pray that God would send out workers to gather the harvest, and then said, go out into the field and gather the harvest. The result of their saying yes to Christ, the result of their following His command to follow Him and become fishers of men, has found its true purpose, and that is being sent out. God doesn't save us to sit on the sideline, to to throw up a prayer asking God to help as we watch spiritually distressed people live out their lives. He wants us to go as He has prepared us and to be a part of this harvest. One may say, well, if Jesus gave me authority over unclean spirits and the gift of healing, hey, I would go out. You couldn't stop me. I would go everywhere and tell everyone the good news of Jesus Christ if He would have equipped me this way. Well, He isn't going to do that. Let me just burst your bubble right now. He's not going to do that. He doesn't need to do that because the message has been authenticated. He has demonstrated that He is who He says He is through virtue of His resurrection and ascension. And so this doesn't need to be entrusted to us, this gift of healing, in order to embolden us to go out and share the good news of the message of the kingdom. But as Jesus told these twelve this is what He was going to do for them, He still warned them of the hardship they would endure in spite of this miraculous gifting that we think would empower us to go anywhere and to tell everyone. Here's what He tells them in Matthew 10, 16-18, just a couple of verses away, in the same paragraph, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Uh Uh-oh. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Be aware of men. Uh Uh-oh. For they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. Uh Uh-oh. And you will even be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. I wonder what the disciples were thinking when they heard that. Wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus. You know, I I want you as my Savior, and I'm, I'm willing to follow you, but isn't that a little too much? Isn't that a little too far? Is this really the expectation for you and I today? Well, I think in a sense we are being sent out as sheeps in the midst of wolves. I I think we do need to be aware of men. I don't think we're going to be handed over to the courts. I don't think we're going to be flogged. 
in the synagogues. I don't think we're going to be brought before civil governments yet. But the reality is this. Being a witness for Jesus is a difficult thing because not everyone is going to like it. Some may try to make life harder for us in our community, in our workplace, maybe even in our family because of that. But in the end, we must remember that our lives rest in the hands of a sovereign God who loves us, who has empowered us, and who is pleased with our service to Him. I wonder how differently we might feel about the mass of humanity and their spiritually distressed and depressed spirit if we could go back to the moment when we recognized that all that we lacked and all that we desired could be instantly met in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. In that moment of brokenness, where nothing could prevent us from saying yes to Christ, I wonder how differently we would look at the mass of humanity if that was at the front of our minds before we left our house, as we walked into a Walmart, as we entered the doors of our workplace, as we encountered a stranger in the community. If we were to look at them before we opened our mouths and before they said or did a thing and we were reminded this is potentially somebody who is ready for harvest, who is spiritually distressed and dispirited like a sheep without a shepherd, And I possess within me the good news of the gospel of God's kingdom. And then prayed, God, give me boldness to speak the truth in love and to trust you with the results. Somebody somewhere did that for you. It may have been a mother, it may have been a father as a child, and that's great. That's safe and easy. But the reality is this, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And rather than projecting our prayer for God to send workers out into the harvest, outwardly we should say them in a mirror, God send me, send me to do what you've called me to do as a disciple of Christ, one saved by grace through faith, forever changed by your mercy. Would you pray with me please?